0: Today, we're in Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. If you are using one of the black hardbound Bibles, that is on page 884. Again, we're reading from Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Remember, we're reading God's word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. Coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear God. Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You may have a seat.
1: that I would be good even if I did nothing that I would be good even if I got the thumbstone that I would be good if I got Sick, that I would be good, even if I gained him.
2: a prayer, that's someone realizing what we all realize, is that we have things we're not proud of, and we have fears that scare us, and we're worried that if those flaws we have are known, that if those fears we dread are realized, we're afraid we won't be accepted. We won't be loved. And that's a prayer. That's saying, I, I want to be okay even if I gain 10 pounds. I want to be okay even if I get and stay sick. I want to be loved and, and, and cared for even if I lose my sanity. Even if I lose my hair and my youth. And all of us have this dread. That if the real us were known, no one would love us, no one would care, we wouldn't be accepted, we wouldn't be okay. And that's what Alanis Morissette's tapping into there. And I don't know whether you like her or you hate her. (laughs) This wasn't one of her bigger songs. Um, They featured it on MTV Unplugged, and you could see the people singing along, and some of her uh, most devout fans please don't identify yourself if that's you. But some of her most devout fans were singing along because there's something in that that just so resonates with us. Will I be loved and accepted if I don't measure up? That's the question that deep down we ask if we are honest enough to think about it. And so as a result, we seek to prove ourselves. We try to prove ourselves to uh, people. So some of us are working very, very hard to try to prove ourselves to our parents. Some of you, the, 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 the family you grew up in had such a dynamic where your dad never, ever said, I'm proud of you. Never said you're okay. And so there's this There's this thing you're trying to work towards to prove to him, to prove to your mom that you're okay. Some of you, you're trying to prove yourself to your spouse. They see you as you really are. They see you without the makeup. They see how you've gained 10 pounds. And so you try to compensate by proving yourself in different ways. We try to prove ourselves to our friends, impress people. We try to even prove ourselves to people we don't even like. Right, We prove ourselves to our enemies. You'll hear athletes all the time talk about, yeah, my haters out there, well now I showed you. You're proving yourself to people you don't even like. I think a lot of times for me, I'm trying to prove myself to myself. To want to be able to look in the mirror and go, I'm okay. There's this scene in one of the Rocky movies where someone asks Rocky, Hey, Rocky, do you think you're going to win the fight? And he says, I just want to finish the fight because then I'll know I'm not a bum. And all of us have, each of us have something where, where some bottom line where if we can just do this or achieve this or have this, then we could look in the mirror and know that we're not a bum. And this is both religious people and irreligious people. Right. Religious uh, people are trying to prove themselves to God. Right. And so there's this sense that religious people have. Of, I can't measure up. I can't. Uh, God, God sees how I really am. I have to I have to do something to prove myself. I better man, I better join a community. I better serve. I better do something. I better be at church every week. I better to, to prove yourself to God. That's a religious thing that people do. But people are just just irreligious. People do this, too. I got to prove myself in all these other ways. What we're looking at today is the one thing that can free us from this. Because, listen, this is an exhausting way to live. It is exhausting to have to constantly be trying to prove yourself, even to yourself. It's why we're so phony. It's why we're so fake. It's why we put up fronts. It's why we deflect things. Right? It, it's exhausting. It's it's slavery. Is there any opportunity to be free from it? The answer is yes. That's what we're going to look at today. It's the grace of God, the gracious nature and character and and mercy of God that frees us to not have to prove ourselves. This is what we're looking at today. God is gracious, so I don't need to prove myself. God is gracious, so I don't need to prove myself. God will accept me as what we'll see today on the basis of what He's done in such a powerful way that I will be freed from having to prove myself. What we've been doing in this series is we've been looking at the character of God. So this is the fourth G. Our kind of main idea for this series has been that we respond to what we think God is like. What you think God is like informs you. And so we've looked at that God is great and glorious and good and gracious. Because if we can get these truths, if we can get these ideas of who God is, it shapes how we live. What is the image that you have in your head of God? What's God like to you? There's a lot of different ways that people think about God. Here are some examples. Uh, Some people think of God as the faceless, nameless, distant force, right? He's... Momentum. he's energy, he's light, or she. And, uh, and, and it's just this force out there, right? I, I, this is why, I mean, this is the whole idea of use the force, Luke. Which, by the way, if you ever say that to me, you'll be about the 4,000th person that's ever said that. It's not original. It's not creative. It's not funny. It's just dumb. All right? Save it. Anyway, that's how some people see God. He's the force. He's the, the, the energy, right? That's, that's how some people see God. Other people see God as like the on-star God, right? So you know what on-star is when your car breaks down. And this is the idea of like, I only need God when I'm really in trouble. So bad thing happens and I go, ding, ding, you know. And God's like, OnStar. how may I assist you? And you tell him your problem and you hope he fixes it. And then you don't really need him anymore. You've kind of moved on. You just use him to get what you want. Uh, some of you might think of God as kind of the grandpa God. You know, this is the the God who's quiet and he's sweet. And there's always a butterscotch in his pocket, and he smells like pipe tobacco, and and he's got a twenty dollar bill that he slips you as you leave, and and he's really sweet and nice, but he's not all that sharp anymore, and you know things kind of get by him, and he doesn't really keep up with modern stuff, and th- that's how a lot of people think of God. Yeah, he's sort of a sweet idea, but not really much for me today. Some of us think of the stained glass God. This is the God who only lives at church, right? And, and so you come to the house of the Lord and you encounter God here, but then as soon as you leave, he's you know, not really anywhere to be found. He's stuck inside these walls. Other people think about God as the patriot God. He just cares mostly about the red, white, and blue and American values. And you know he hates Muslims for sure. He's, he thinks Obama might be one, but he's not sure about that and and he just this is all about america and red white and blue and constant right, and the bill of rights and the bible are pretty much the same thing um, that's some people's perspectives of god other people have a view of like the politically correct god this is a god that never tells you you're wrong never offends just take take what you want leave what you want he's like a big buffet take a little bit of this leave a little bit of that some of you you think of god as the Magruber God. You guys know who Magruber is? Any Saturday Night Live fans out there? Magruber's is kind of a take on MacGyver, where there's always this big crisis. Something's about to blow up, and Magruber is there to try to save the day. And unlike MacGyver, uh, Magruber always runs out of time, right? The clock is ticking, and then he's right about to have the solution, and then boom, everything blows up. And, and, and some of you think of God that way. You think, you know, when when the most significant problems were happening in my life, God just ran out of time. He must not be that powerful. There's a lot of different ways we can think about God. I think one of the most dominant ways, one of the dominant misconceptions we think about God, and this is among Christians, okay? So I'm not just talking about those outside the church, but those in the church, mistakenly think of God as the scorekeeper God. And and closely connected to that is the doomsday God, the scorekeeper God. He's the one who has a clipboard and he's got agents everywhere and they have clipboards and they are watching everything you do. You better not pout. You better not cry. Better not shout. I'm telling you why. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've done bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. And they're just looking for any chance, right? And and the scorekeeper and doomsday God are kind of similar, because the doomsday God is like all hellfire, all brimstone, all the time. He's just like ready, like, give me give me a bad report. I want to crush him, right? I'm I'm gonna let him have it. Like I'm gonna finally pay them back, right? And some of us have that idea. If someone came to you and said, Hey, God's looking for you, you'd go, Uh oh, what did I do? And, and that, that guilty conscience that plagues you reveals that you believe mostly in this scorekeeper God. Be a good person, right? If, if I asked you, how certain are you that you'd go to heaven? You go, ah, I, I think I'd go to heaven. And, you, and I said, why? And you said, well, because I've been a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody. You know, boy, that's a high standard. Congratulations on not being a murderer. Welcome to heaven, right? But you go, I'm pretty good. What your view is, there's a scorekeeper God. He's keeping track of the good and the bad. And the. But listen, that's not who God is. God is a God who's gracious, who accepts us not on the basis of anything good we would do, but in spite of all the bad we do do. That's how He loves us. And so what I hope is that today you can get a fresh picture of God. I hope that this picture of God that we study today in the Scripture, in Luke 23, will be an image that is burned into your memory, that is burned into how you think about going through your week. And so turn with me to Luke 23 as we get a picture of this God. Uh, The book of Luke is, interestingly enough, written by a guy named Luke. And uh, he also wrote the book of Acts. And uh, Luke was not one of the disciples, not one of the apostles, but he was closely associated with them. And he tells us that he did a lot of research to write this book. And so uh, some of you may have a perspective of the Bible that says, you know, I'm not sure I can trust it. It just seems like the kind of thing that... It's like a big game of telephone, it just changes over time, and you know this person said this, and this person said that, and that was Luke's concern also. And so he'd heard all these different stories, and he wanted to make sure that the things he'd heard were right. And so he went and he interviewed eyewitnesses, and he took detailed accounts of all this, and and this is uh, part of the story that he records. Interestingly, this story uh, only occurs in in the book uh, of Luke. It doesn't occur in the other accounts of of Jesus' life. And so that tells us that there was probably an eyewitness that specifically remembered this that Luke talked to. And here he's telling us about the most significant event that's ever happened in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. If you don't know anything about Christianity or, or Jesus, you at least know Jesus was crucified. And this is the account of it. And in this account, we will see a picture of stunning grace. Now, before I go on, let me, I don't, grace is kind of a church word. So let me just make sure we understand what that means. Grace is the idea of unmerited favor. It's it's the idea of you get good when all you deserve is bad. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It's just a free gift, right? So we might talk about, like in school, uh, in school times, if you would write a paper and it would be late or uh, something happened, you might go to your teacher, and the teacher might say, well, I understand I'll give you a grace period. You don't deserve it, right? The paper's due now, but I'll give you grace. What we're going to see here is that Jesus is the God of grace. Let's read it. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus is not crucified just by himself. He's crucified between uh, two criminals, it says here. In Matthew and Mark's account, it specifically says that they were robbers. Uh, That's the idea of bandits Um, probably more like armed robbers. Um, They had committed significant crimes. At this point, Israel is uh, governed by occupying Roman forces. They want to make an example of people that do that. And so these are hardened, uh, probably career-type criminals, and they're crucified next to Jesus. They're going to die in the exact same way that Jesus is going to die. Do you know what it is that kills someone when they are crucified? What is it that actually kills you? You know, it's not the, the nails that they drive through your wrists and through your feet, your ankles. It's not that. It's not the way that they flog you beforehand with bits of bone and glass attached to the string so that when it lands into your skin, it rips out a chunk. That's not what kills you. It's suffocation. As you hang there... Uh, You hang in such a way where when they would drop the crossbeam in its slot, it would usually separate your shoulders and your feet would be propped up and nailed to a little plank. And the idea would be that you would hang there and push yourself up repeatedly with the rough wood of the the vertical beam scraping up against all the flesh and skin that had just been ripped off in your flogging. You'd be naked. If you've ever seen a crucifix, there's some modesty added to that. But Jesus and these two men were crucified stark naked as a way of of shaming them. These two men being killed with Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus here, the innocent one. Jesus here, the one who had been falsely accused, had been betrayed by his closest disciple, had then been brought before the Jewish leaders who made up false charges against him and then sent him off to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who says, I can't find anything wrong with this guy, but all the crowds want to kill him. Jesus, this innocent man who's being crucified and killed and brutalized and tortured... His prayer, His heart for these people is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the people stood by watching, it says in verse 35, but the rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He's the Christ of God, His chosen One. These people, these rulers, these soldiers... It says in Matthew's account even that that both of these thieves join in to the mockery. And they're saying, if you're the Christ, right? you got to understand this. Christ is a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name like you didn't get invited over to the Christ family's house for dinner. Uh, Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. It speaks of the figure that the Old Testament Jews would would look forward to, the Messiah, the one who would come. And so Jesus Christ is is Jesus the Christ. And and they had this expectation of what the Christ would be. They expected Him to be a a political ruler who would overthrow the government. And, And so they're saying... If if you're the Messiah, come down from there. This isn't how it's supposed to work. What they're saying is, Jesus, prove yourself. We have these expectations of you. Prove yourself. Live up to it. The soldiers also mocked him. Verse 36, coming up and offering Him sour wine. The sour wine was probably like a painkiller of sorts to try to numb the process because this would go on for sometimes even days because you would just keep pushing up and keep pushing up to try to get air in your lungs until eventually you would suffocate. And so the sour wine would numb Some of that pain. It would take so long. This is why if you keep reading the rest of the story, what you see is that the Sabbath was the next day. So they came and they broke the legs of these two thieves so that they couldn't push up and get any more air and they died quickly. So the soldiers offer painkiller and say, if you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. So Matthew had told us Uh, And Mark tells us that these two criminals are both reviling Jesus. They're joining in the mockery. And Luke tells us an example of of what they're saying, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Uh, That word is a vivid word. That's a word of anger, right? If Jesus is there with a word of compassion and saying, Father, forgive them, this man is angry. He's railing at Jesus saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. If if you're this powerful guy, do something to help me. Right? Interestingly, it's a request to be saved, to have salvation. But it's not a request filled with any kind of love or any kind of trust. It's filled with anger and entitlement. And you owe me. While the other thief has a change of heart. We don't know exactly what brought it about. The uh, Scripture doesn't tell us. I, I, I can't wait to get to heaven and meet this thief and interview him and go, what did you see? Right? Because these other accounts tell us they were both joining in. And I don't know if perhaps they, that he heard or saw the contrast between his mockery of Jesus and Jesus' response saying, forgive them. I don't know what he saw. And I don't know what this thief knew about Jesus. We don't know if he had encountered Him in His ministry or in His teaching, if he had seen any of His miracles. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Wouldn't you love to know? But he has some kind of miraculous change of heart. And this other thief, hearing what the other criminal said, rebukes him. Verse 40, The other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This other thief is saying, we're about to die and face God. Do you really want your last moment, instead of reflecting on what a mess you've made of your life, do you really want it to be mocking this man? Do you not fear God? And notice there's this admission of guilt. He's saying, we are receiving the due reward. I'm guilty. I deserve to die. My, my breaking the law of, of men has sentenced me to this death, and my breaking the law of God says that I deserve it. He says that, that that's we deserve this. And then he turns with undeveloped imperfect faith. And he says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We don't know what he saw. We don't know what he knew. But in that moment, by God's grace, by God's unmerited favor, this thief was given eyes to see who Jesus really was. And he saw, this is no ordinary man. This is no criminal like me. This is a man who's done nothing wrong. This is a king. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has enough faith to say, I know that there's something special about this man. And I don't know exactly what it is, but he's the king. And this death is not going to be the last word for him. And how does Jesus respond? He say, sorry, you had your chance. You should have dealt with this earlier. Sorry, people who steal, not allowed into heaven. Sorry, you know what? You need to get baptized. And you're going to die in a few minutes and you're not going to be able to get baptized. And if you're not baptized, you can't go to heaven. Too bad. Is that what he says? No, he says, truly, I say to you, or some translations would call that truly, truly. Like if you hear nothing else, this is absolutely, this is a covenant language. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. That is grace. So I love this because all these people were saying, hey, Jesus, prove yourself. And Jesus goes, I don't need to prove myself because I'm not living according to your expectations. I came with a different agenda. And the thief can't prove himself. Yo, well, how did we know if he had a change of heart? Did his life change? Did he, you know, did, did he begin, did he pay back? No, he, he had no opportunity to, to get baptized, to pay people back. Now, listen, if you love the Lord, you want to follow him in baptism. You want to do what he commands. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. But this man had no opportunity even to change his life. He had no opportunity to prove himself. And yet Jesus in grace says, I accept you. Today, listen, listen, my kingdom's coming, and I know you're asking for that someday, but but you'll be with me today in paradise. I think this has profound implications for how we view our relationship with God and how we view ourselves, that we don't need to prove ourselves. If, If this kind of grace is available to us, then we don't need to prove ourselves to God. We would obey Him because we love Him, but we don't obey Him because we're trying to prove something. Do you get the difference? Right? In religion, you obey God in order for Him to accept you. But what this is saying is that He accepts you when you see Him as great, and then you obey just because you want to. It's a big world of difference. And so there's some implications of this, some ways that I think we need to, to try to to live this out and, and, and live in the reality of God's powerful grace. And so I have, I have three things, three kind of so-whats to this. Uh, the first one is this. Trust that Jesus' acceptance is enough. If Jesus says, I accept you, you're my son, you're my daughter, that's enough. That's the final word. You can stop your restless striving to prove yourself. It's enough. I think of, uh, I love the 30 for 30 movies that are on ESPN, kind of documentaries about certain athletes and and interesting stories. And there was one about Todd Marinovich. Uh, Todd Marinovich was uh, born and raised in Southern California, went to USC, ended up playing for the Raiders, and was this kind of all-world quarterback. He was known as Robo QB uh, because the idea was that his dad, who was a strength and conditioning coach, had done all these things to make him this superior athlete. Like they talked about in this documentary that in the crib, his dad would stretch his hamstrings, right? And, and like as soon as he could do push-ups and, and they were doing weight training before people did weight training. And he was like this perfectly right? He never had a French fry. He never, right? And he, he was like this perfectly engineered kid and, and he lived with the weight of his father's expectation. Always wanting to prove himself to his dad. And it says in there that anytime things got hard, uh, his dad would say to him, well, at least you're not playing the New York Giants. Because back then, the Giants were good. (laughs) Wade, that was for you. He'd go, at least you're not playing the New York Giants. Well, the day came when Marinovich, after leaving early uh, from USC and playing for the Raiders, came to play against the New York Giants. And he played great. And he said, Dad, you can't can't say that anymore because I just played against the New York Giants. And his dad said, I know, and I'm proud of you. And Marinovich reflects on that, and he says, at that moment, my career was over. The moment I heard my dad say, I'm proud of you, my career was over. I didn't need to strive for anything more. I'd finally earned his acceptance. Is Jesus' acceptance enough for you? Trust that it is. You don't need to prove yourself. And so secondly, that means we can live like a son or a daughter, not an orphan. I'm always heartbroken when I hear stories of folks who have adopted children, especially older children who grew up in places where they weren't provided for and weren't loved, and to hear the stories of parents who have to retrain this child to to receive acceptance, to believe we're going to feed you. You don't need to hoard food we're going to love you when you cry we're going to answer and and there and yet for for a long time these these now adopted children live like orphans that's exactly how we are we forget what's really true about us i've seen this in our home lately um if you've been over to our house in the last year and a half, you've maybe seen our refrigerator. And uh, we've got like a you know, two-panel refrigerator, and there's a handle that goes vertically like this. And it broke off the top. And so it was just kind of hanging there. And, um, and, and Molly didn't know how to fix it. Um <laughs> So we asked other people who know how to fix things, and they all said, oh, yeah, no chance. You're not going to be able to fix it. And the whole, fr- I mean, the fridge works fine besides that. I don't want to buy a new fridge just for a handle that I can't fix. So Matthew Brousselton's over a couple weeks ago, and he's like, uh, hey, your door's broken. I'm like, how many times have you been in my house? This must be what your wife feels like after she gets a haircut and you don't notice. Like, she goes, do you have a screwdriver? Let me try to fix it. I'm like, dude. Blake Stockton said it can't be fixed. You got no chance. And he goes, no, let me try. And so 10 minutes later, the door is fixed. But do you know how I open the door now? I reach over the top. Just like I did when it was broken. Because I I have to be retrained that I don't need to live like an idiot that reaches up to the top of the door. I can open the door right? There's a new reality that we have in Christ. Will you, will you accept and live in the freedom of that? And then here's the third thing. We need to remind ourselves who God says we are, right? There's a lot of, well, who do you think? What do you think? What about you? Who does God say we are? That's what matters. His is the final word. His acceptance is what matters. Who does he say you are? And what I love about this passage is that this man has such in undeveloped, imperfect faith. And some of you, what, you, what I think has been holding you back from really expressing your trust in Christ and praying to Him and, and being baptized and following Him with your whole life is this sense that, well, I don't know enough. I haven't done enough. I have to somehow prove myself. This whole thing says, no, you don't. Just trust Him. And then do you know who you are? See, this is then where mature Christians forget who they are. And they think they have to keep proving themselves. No, you are. Well, let me give you a list. We'll give this to you as you leave. It's orange. Can't miss it. Hope you'll put it in your car or on a mirror or somewhere where you'll see it. You need to remind yourself of this. You need to be in a community of people who are reminding you of who God says you are. Who does God say you are? Glad you asked. If you trust Jesus, here's who God says you are. I'm a child of God. I'm a friend of Jesus. I've been declared righteous and redeemed. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not condemned by God. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in me. I have become the righteousness of God in Christ. I am no longer a slave, but a child and an heir. That means that there's an inheritance coming for me. I'm an heir. Slaves don't get inheritances. Children do. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Notice that's past tense. I have been blessed. I have everything I need in Christ. I am chosen, holy, and blameless before God. I have been made alive with Christ. I am God's workmanship. His, his poetry is what that word means. It's the idea of you're, you're a finely crafted poem of God. You're His workmanship created to do good works. I have boldness and confident access to God. I'm a child of light. I'm a citizen of heaven. God supplies all my needs. I have been made complete in Christ. Jesus Christ is my life and I will be with Him in glory and God loves me. Is that good news? But we forget it. We think, oh, but I I haven't read enough lately. And I got angry with my sister. I haven't had a date night in years. I got to prove myself. I got to get back. But Listen. Believe who you who God says you are. God is gracious. We don't need to prove ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you say we are. Thank you for this story of the thief on the cross. Thank you that even when we have undeveloped and imperfect faith, when we don't know everything there is to know and and uh, we don't respond to you always the way we should. Thank you that that there's grace. God, thank You that Jesus offers that to us. I pray we could live in the power and strength of that new reality. And I pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond now. And I want to invite you to respond a couple of ways.